Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio this New Year's. Uh, Happy New Year to you as well. We are now um, about a quarter into our fourth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness and your day-to-day well-being. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen to today as we interview an expert for today's show on, we call it The Road From COP27. Where do we go from here and why does it matter? Now, about COP27, the president of Egypt, which is Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, and that's where Egypt is where it was held this past November, said that I deeply believe that COP27 is an opportunity to showcase unity against an existential threat that we can only overcome through concerted action and effective implementation. Now, the hosting of COP27 in his country, in the green city of Sharm el-Sheikh, marks the 30th anniversary of the adoption of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And in the 30 years since its beginning, the world has come a long, long way in the fight against climate change and its negative impacts on our planet and our health. We are now able to better understand the science behind climate change and better determine its impacts and better develop tools that help us address its causes and its consequences and protect our health somewhat. The plan now to declare Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt a green city included a main goal other than just declaring it a green city. And that goal uh, is the use of clean energy was its main goal. And they also encouraged uh, environmental investment in various areas of preserving the environment. All the cars and buses in Sharm el-Sheikh were scheduled to operate by electricity, and more than 100 charging stations were established for those vehicles. Also, all the hotels in Sharm el-Sheikh were powered by solar energy. Now, 30 years and 26 cops ago or later, we now have a much clearer understanding of the extent of the potential climate crisis and what needs to be done to address it effectively. Doesn't mean we're doing it, but we we know we have a clearer vision of it. The science is there, and it clearly shows the urgency with which we must act regarding rapidly reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases and taking necessary steps to assist those in need of support to adapt to the negative impacts of climate change, as well as finding the appropriate formula that works that will ensure the availability of the required means of implementation of these plans and the other requirements for developing countries in making their contributions to this global effort, especially 
in the midst of our uninterrupted international crises that we've experienced, including the ongoing food security crisis uh, that's been exacerbated by climate change, the war in Ukraine, desertification and water scarcity, especially in Africa, which is the continent that suffers the most impacts from climate change. Now, in 2015, the world came together and showed the will to make the necessary compromises, which led to the successful adoption of the Paris Agreement. And that indeed was successful because many, many people around the globe only really became aware of climate change and and the talks and the, the need for global action with the Paris Agreement. Many, many people only know uh, the Paris Agreement as, as perhaps the only thing uh, related to or perhaps the only plans being made for climate change. But today, and in light of the unmistakable messages in the recent United Nations IPCC reports and also following last year's COP26 in Glasgow, we are once again called upon to act rapidly if we are to really meet the 1.5 degree Celsius goal that we'll talk a lot about later during this show. And also only if we're going to actually build resilience and enhance our capacity to adapt to the the issues and the chaos and other things that climate change is causing on us. And while there are no doubt major undertakings, I sincerely believe that we can also be these can also become opportunities for transformation towards sustainability if we collectively think creatively and demonstrate the necessary political will. Now with this in mind, Again, the world tried to come together yet again to reaffirm its commitment to the global climate agenda, despite the difficulties and despite the many uncertainties of our current time. The hope was that all parties and stakeholders were coming to Sharm el-Sheikh with a stronger ambition on climate change mitigation, adaptation, as well as climate finance, and demonstrating actual success stories on implementing commitments and fulfilling their pledges. So COP27 was indeed an opportunity to showcase unity against an existential threat that we can only overcome through our concerted action and again through effective implementation. And as the incoming presidency, Egypt spared no effort to ensure that COP27 became the moment when the world moved from negotiation to implementation and where words were translated indeed into actions and where we collectively can start on a path towards sustainability as well as a just transition and eventually a greener future for our coming generations. Now, this is a lot. But it's also very important. And here today to help us explore and unpack some of this and to help us understand what really happened at COP27 is Tess Wiskell. Tess is an emergency medicine physician practicing at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And she's a climate and human health fellow with Harvard University's Center for Climate, 
Health and Global Environment and the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Tess's focus is on understanding and addressing health impacts of climate change in at-risk populations and to evaluate the long-term effects, including migration of whole communities, which we're all seeing the effect of it, whether we realize it or not. Tess is currently working with a multidisciplinary team at Crisis Ready to understand the health impacts of extreme weather events on medically vulnerable populations with a focus on the wildfires in California. Welcome, Tess. Thank you so much for being with us today. And did I get all of that right? You got all of that right. It's great to be here today, Bernice. Thank you. Now, Tess, before we really dive off into looking at the COP and understanding what it is, I want to talk about a term that's always thrown about by experts and environmentalists, and and certainly when you talk about COP, and that is the significance of this 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark. How do you think we might be better able to communicate this goal and its meaning and its importance to uh, our everyday audience of ordinary people? So as you just talked about, this 1.5 degrees goal comes from the Paris Agreement. So this is this agreement in 2015 at COP to try to to limit warming to less than 2 degrees Celsius, ideally closer to 1.5 degrees C. And that's where we got this from. And I think it's hard sometimes for everyday people to understand this because one degree Celsius, that's not that much. It doesn't sound like that much to somebody. Um, when do you get more changes than that, just changing seasons and going day to day sometimes in your life. But what it is is this overall warming. And I think the way to communicate this better to people is talking more about the impacts. And I think that's one of the themes that happened at this COP was talking about the impacts. Because although it's hard to, to relate so much to a number, like this, this number that we've set of 1.5 degrees C, talking about the different impacts that are going to happen at these different numbers, I think can really help people relate more to that number. And I think the other really big thing to think about is that everything's not over if we pass and go up to 1.6. We can still try to limit warming. It's not every 0.1 of a degree is going to really have an impact on people's everyday lives. So warming to 1.4 is going to be better than 1.5, and 1.6 is better than 1.7. So it's not this magical number, but every 0.1 degree of warming is really important. Indeed. Thank you for that that explanation. I It, it was good. I liked it, and, and, and hopefully others can get a grip on it. Now, but why was the decision, uh, the goal set at 1.5 rather than 2.0, or 1.8, or 1.2? <laughs> Well, actually, the number was two. So the, the the number was to keep warming less than two. Okay. But then we're saying ideally less than 1.5 just because of the numbers of impacts that it's going to have. And that's some of the things that we're seeing now. From So everything from extreme weather events to sea level rise, we're starting to see that now. And we're thinking that at 1.5, we're going to see more and more of this to where the world is just not a place that we can live in the same way we're living in it now. And I think that's why the number of 1.5 was set or really anything that's closer to where we can be. And you can see projections from the IPCC reports of what the world's going to look like at these different numbers. And really 1.5 is where we can live 
similarly to where we are now. Uh, really briefly, because we just have about 30 seconds before we need to go to break, and we may need to continue this discussion on the other side. But if you can give us one brief example of what is projected to happen, say, when we get to 2.5. So one example I think that's easy to relate to is heat. We're going to see more heat waves. We're going to see them happening more often, and we're going to see them at higher intensity, and we're going to see parts of the world becoming unlivable because of how high this heat is and the water scarcity and the desertification and everything else happening with it when we get over these goals and over these numbers. Indeed, and I think we need to publish a chart of these things because I think that will really make an Mm -hmm. impact on people. Tess, we're going to go to break now. We have been with Tess Wiskell, who is with uh, Harvard University Center for Climate Change and Crisis Ready. Thank you. We'll be right back on the other side. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth, Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in many Whole Foods markets, all-natural grocers, all-central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DYI classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body and non-mercury. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at LynnDentalCare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show on the road from COP27, where do we go from here and why does it matter and what happened in COP27? And we are back with today's guest, Tess Wiskell. Tess is with uh, Harvard University Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment. That's Sea Change, uh, as well as Crisis Ready. Again, thank you for being uh, with us, Tess. And right before the break, you were giving us one example of what will happen or what the world may look like, say, if we do go over that to 1.5 and, and, and 2 point Celsius. And my comment, and I would love to see this, is maybe a li- if we can publish or find a list of some of these example of occurrences. And again, it's, 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 it's very consistent with the purpose of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, and that is to show people why this is important. And when they, when they see that, know that, and internalize it, then I think there'll be more of a buy-in uh, and collective action to really do the change that's necessary. But thank you for giving us that example. Uh, so now, Tess, though, let's move on to the COP27, though. Why should people care about COP27? What is it? Why is it held every year? And, and whose idea was it originally? So COP, for people that don't know, and believe me, I talked to a lot of friends who had no idea what it was when I said COP. COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it's a United Nations conference that brings together parties or different nations to come up with agreements to combat climate change. And really, it's the way that we get different nations together and come together with agreements on how to mitigate climate change, so reduce fossil fuel emissions, 
and now really adapt to climate change. And 27 refers to the number. So this was the 27th COP um, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt this year. And this COP was different in the sense that it was talking more about the effects. The past COPs have been talking a lot about the causes and fossil fuels and what we're doing to mitigate this. But I think this year, just seeing all the impacts that are happening now, COP27 really talked about impacts. And the theme of this COP was together for implementation. So we're really thinking about what we're doing now and how we're thinking about impacts. And that's where health, what I do, really comes in now. And the urgency. I think this COP really was more urgent um, as we're seeing these impacts. Just looking at the floods in Pakistan over the last summer, I think really emphasizes to the people that we need to do something now and we need to think about impacts and we need to think about what climate change is doing to our world now. About how many, I think in Glasgow, they were like a little over 200 nations. How many, how many nations were in attendance this year? You know, I don't know the exact number of nations, but I think it's somewhere around there. Um, around 200. And I know that it was attended by over 30,000 people, I believe. It was one of the largest COP attendances. It might have been even higher than that. But it was a huge attendance um, and really people coming together. And we had really significant leadership coming. Um, So from the United States, Biden came and gave a speech. Not every nation leader came, but it's really impressive that President Biden came and that there was significant representation from the U.S. with John Kerry leading the climate envoy, but really having high up leaders from John Kerry to President Biden coming and speaking, showing what the commitments are from the United States to this crisis. Were there any surprise attendees? You know, maybe some of those nations or organizations that were really deniers or just were really hard nuts to crack in terms of getting them on board? Um, Well, I think one of the big things that was a good change, actually, was from the changing government in Brazil. So Bolsonaro um, changed to Lula da Silva, and although Lula had not yet quite been inaugurated, Lula came, and that was a big deal at COP. There was a lot of um, interest, and it was great to see the new support from Brazil with this change in government. Um, and I will say that there were countries, including oil-producing countries, that were coming in and talking about what they wanted to do to change. And I think that's a big thing, is that really people are recognizing this as a problem. The denialism is less. And that even oil producing countries are saying, what can we do? I want to ask you about oil producing countries, which was not on my agenda to talk about. But <laughs> what, <laughs> what are you really seeing? Uh, is it substantive? Are they really part of the collective? Yeah, I think it's hard. I think there's there's words being said as far as how substantive it is now. I do not think we know the answer to that. Uh, is it just words being said and just, just paying lip service to climate change? Um, There are countries that were pushing against the negotiations to pay for loss and damage to um, move towards a more commitment on decreasing fossil fuel emissions. So there definitely is not everybody coming together and saying we need to decrease the fossil fuel emissions. One of the big things from COP was that there was not a new agreement to decrease fossil fuel emissions. There was reaffirmation of the Paris Agreement, what we just talked about, of limiting warming to less than two degrees Celsius, ideally closer to this 1.5 degrees C goal, but there wasn't a new pledge. There wasn't new commitment. 
And it was some of these fossil fuel producing nations um, that were pushing against a new pledge or a bigger commitment. Well, it appears that many of the fossil fuel larger producers are seeing or have been for a long time seeing some significant impacts of the climate change that they're helping to helping to fuel. What's with that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, some of these countries are in um, the Middle East where we're seeing significant impacts of the heat. And it's and I think that's one of the big ways that this is getting harder to deny. So in the way that in the past people would deny that climate change was happening or that this is just weather, right now it's harder to deny this when people are seeing the impacts of heat and seeing all these extreme weather events around the world. And that's, I think, what's making denialism less and is making countries talk more about climate change and what they're going to do and how we're going to move forward in the future from fossil fuel-producing countries to the companies themselves. And how much of that is going to come to fruition, I think, remains to be seen. How much is just lip service remains to be seen. But that's what our job is to do, is to push them and make sure that they commit to these goals and commit to these changes. Now, the other thing I want to talk about again before we get into COP27 a a lot in detail was why is and was the Paris Agreement so popular and widely known? really big change because countries, there was, I believe, 187 countries ratified this agreement. So that's a lot of countries coming together to say that we want this to happen to get to a net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And what it brings about is these nationally determined contributions. So each nation itself comes up with how they're going to get to this goal. And this is the first time we really had an agreement between this many countries to bring down emissions. And that's why it's such an amazing thing that this many 187 countries can come together to reduce fossil fuel emissions and mitigate climate change. Um, I think that's why this is even more than what COP is coming through than the national and people's minds and then what people are hearing. People have heard about this Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm because it's so unique that we can bring people together like that. Thank you for that explanation, because, again, a lot of people know about it, but I don't think, well, I know all of those, and many of those do not know its significance. And it really Mm -hmm. was a watershed event with all of these uh, Mm -hmm. uh, countries coming together to commit to it. Thank you for that. Now, Tess, you and your work are basically focused on health care and or health impacts, that side of uh, what we like to look at. And of course, that's an issue or one of our focus points too here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. So what are the reasons pretty much what's driving healthcare providers to attend the COP? And what percentage, I would like to say, are, are, are the healthcare providers or those concerned with health impacts? What percentage are they uh, in terms of, of uh, the COP27 and what kind of impact are they having? Well, I, I think health is becoming a bigger and bigger part of this over time. Um, And I think healthcare providers are becoming more and more enthused about it as we really are seeing these impacts. So we are seeing the health impacts of climate change on our patients now. And in particular, we're seeing the climate change is a risk multiplier for the social determinants of health and these things that are impacting our most vulnerable patients. And we're really seeing this and we really wanna be a voice for these patients and what's happening to them so that we can protect their health. And really, this is a threat to public health and one of the biggest threats to public health. And I think healthcare providers are becoming aware of this and realizing this, and that is what is motivating this. So as far as the exact percentage of healthcare providers or people within the healthcare sector at COP, I don't know that number. And I honestly am not sure if anybody does, but I can say that the presence is becoming more and more felt. 
Last year, COP26 was the first time the World Health Organization had a pavilion. Um, and they continue that pavilion this year. And the presence there was amazing to see so many healthcare providers talking about health um, and talking about the impacts was amazing. Um, there was everything from nurses and physicians to students coming out and talking about the health impacts, um, doing everything from talking about how it's impacting their patients to organizing protests about the impacts on health of these of the, the warming and not reaching these goals. Um, and the stories that healthcare providers can bring of what climate change is doing now, I think is really impactful um, to policymakers, to the negotiations, for people to hear what is happening now and really move it forward. And the credibility that healthcare providers and those in the health field bring to this conversation uh, is amazing. Because as I said, on Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, our, our goal is to connect the various uh, environmental issues with the attendant health impacts. And so we are always digging, scouring, searching for health-related professionals who can address the health impacts of particular environmental issues. Sometimes that's difficult. <laughs> you know, like with lung <laughs> issues, that's easy, allergies and things like that. Perhaps yeah. not so easy with plastics to find somebody who can really uh, connect those dots. But I'm very excited that, that they're becoming, you all are becoming a much, much greater part of the conversation. And a lot of it has to do with your high credibility. When healthcare professionals speak, people listen and they believe. Mm -hmm. And so when they hear you guys talking about these health impacts, uh, there's a tendency not to deny it. So I think it's great. Absolutely. We're going to go ahead and go to break now. We'll be right back on the other side with Tess Wiskell to make us much smarter. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to today's show on the road from COP27. Where did we go? Where do we go from here? Why does it matter? And what really happened at COP27? And we are here back with Tess Wiskell with Harvard Sea Change, as well as Crisis Ready. And she really is making us smarter. So thank you so much, Tess, for being with us today. Now, we were talking about kind of the impact or the presence of uh, healthcare providers and people in the health field uh, on the whole climate change uh, conversation, as well as on COP27. So my question to you, the inevitable question is, how did COVID impact or filter into the COP27 conversations? COVID was honestly less present at this COP than at last year's COP as far as being able to get there. So one thing I will say is that it, there was not mandatory testing to attend COP, um, which did, I think, make it more accessible. And there wasn't mandatory vaccinations either, which does at times make it more accessible to people, which I do think is an important part of COP in a way that it was not at Glasgow. However, we know that COVID's impacting everything. COVID's impacting travel. COVID's and COVID is impacting how people are using their resources. Um, we've seen from COVID the impact on healthcare systems, and we've seen how we're, we weren't prepared to treat COVID. And I think that that is echoed in the climate crisis, in the way that we are not prepared, our health systems are not prepared to respond to the threats of the climate 
climate crisis in the same way. Or not much of anything um, else, for that of... matter. <laughs> I think that's exactly. what COVID showed us. We're, we're not prepared to, to respond <laughs> to climate crisis, COVID, or not much else <laughs> crises. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's the bigger thing COVID's having, is it's showing that we're not ready, and it is pushing us towards this preparedness. So I think there's a lot of talk within the health system about how we need to make our health systems more resilient and more sustainable. And this is going to help for COVID, but it's also and for other infectious diseases that might emerge, but it's also going to help with our climate crisis. Um, and there's, there's a lot of discussion about both of these things. Um, everything from the ATTACH initiative, which was initially started at COP26, and, but continued a lot of talk about this year, which is the Alliance for Transformative Action on Climate and Health, um, talking about sustainable and resilient health systems worldwide, where over 60 countries have signed up to make their healthcare systems more resilient, um, and this is hosted between by the World Health Organization. But there really is this push to have us be more prepared. Were there any other maybe findings or learnings from COVID that perhaps may have filtered back in to what we see or what we expect from climate change? I mean, one thing that we are going to be seeing from climate change is going to be changing patterns of infectious diseases as we saw with COVID. So here in the U.S., we're already seeing these changing patterns of infectious diseases from Lyme disease. We're seeing it moving further northward and expanding its seasonality. Um, And we're going to see that with other diseases as well, from dengue and Zika. Um, We're going to see changing patterns of infectious disease, and we need to be ready and prepared to take care of that. We're also seeing the need to look at the whole parts of healthcare systems. So we need to make sure our hospitals and our clinics are staffed and prepared to deal with risk disasters. But we also need to look at our supply chains and make sure that our supply chains are ready. And one big thing to look at from this perspective is that right now our supply chains are a huge source of emissions themselves. Um, in U.S. healthcare, up to 80% of emissions are from our supply chains. So while we're looking at our supply chains and making sure that they are resilient in the settings of different disasters from an emerging infectious disease like COVID to our climate-related extreme weather events, we need to look at our supply chains and make them both resilient, but also look at how we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by having more sustainable supply chains. Did the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which still tickles me that they call it that, (laughs) did that in any way deal with uh, supply chains and uh, making them resilient or or making them uh, responsive to climate change uh, impacts at all? Actually, one of the big things that was released at COP and was talked about at COP is a new announcement between the HHS and the NHS, the National Health Service um, of Britain, who's been really a leader in climate change and the resilience of climate change sector in Great Britain, um, is that the, the two countries are going to work together on supply chains to reduce emissions from supply chains and work together on building resilience as well. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea because we, we definitely have to fix the supply chains. And so why not mm-hmm. fix them right and fix them exactly. so that they respond to this threat that we have. So hopefully that'll, that'll yeah, be done. Really. It's not typically the case, though. They just fix it, run, and go. 
<laughs> it's true. Okay. Um, and the IRA is talking a lot about infrastructure. And I don't know exactly where it is on supply chains within healthcare, but there is a lot about infrastructure that's going to be happening, which is very important. Indeed, indeed. Now, so Tess, what did the goals going into COP27 look like when they came out on the other side? <laughs> I think one of the really big things that we talked about was about loss and damage. So this is one thing that is not a common term that people think about, but loss and damage is about the need to for nations that are most vulnerable to receive funding for disasters that they're already experiencing. And this is something that was talked about since the early 90s. And even just going into COP, there was argument about putting it onto the agenda. So there was prolonged arguments talking about loss and damage even being on the agenda. And then it was added to the agenda. And then by the end of COP, we were able to create a loss and damage fund, which is a really amazing first step towards talking about these damages, particularly for vulnerable nations to receive funding for these disasters. So that's one thing that was an accomplishment of this COP, that a loss and damage fund was created. And I thought that was cool because our news, mm -hmm. the news reports gave us a blow by blow. And that's how I knew Mm -hmm. about that. But they were giving us a blow by blow of the what was going on, the conversations. You know, people want this. They don't want it. It's not. And then I so, you know, I left it where it wasn't going to happen. And then a couple of days later, I came back. Wow. So I thought that was really, really a significant occurrence. It is. It really is. And there's still the, the idea is that over the next year, it's going to be talked about more the actual specifics of how it's going to work. Um, but the fact that it's even been created and was allowed to be talked about is a really big accomplishment of this COP. That being said, a loss and damage fund needs to be in the billions of dollars, in the hundreds of billions of dollars to really account for all the climate-related disasters that are happening. And at this point, the amounts that have actually been contributed to the loss and damage funds are on the orders of millions of dollars. So there's still a lot of ways to go to actually have loss and damage fund that actually accounts for all the damages that are happening. But having it created is the first step. Yeah, I, and I, I imagine, hopefully by COP28, <laughs> it, it <laughs> may have a structure and be up and running to some degree. And speaking of which, where is COP28 going to be? I believe they released it. It's going to be in the UAE and Dubai. Oh, okay. Good place. And so, Tess, what would you say, though, are the most important, other than the, the loss and damage fund, which I really do know is important, uh, the most important and impactful things to come out of COP27? And what were some of the noteworthy health impact-related initiatives and partnerships to come out of it? Well, one of the ones is what we just talked about, of right. how we're talking about really talking about supply chains and healthcare emissions. So healthcare emissions themselves are a big contributor to emissions worldwide. Um, the actual statistic is, I believe, that about 4.5% of global cumulative net emissions are from healthcare. So healthcare-related Decreasing emissions, particularly from supply chains, and the agreement to reduce these is a big thing to come out of COP27. As far as decreasing overall emissions, there was no new agreement, but at least there was this reaffirmation of the Paris Agreement goals of limiting warming to ideally around 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we saw different countries coming together to provide funding for loss and damage as well as adaptation, which is a big deal. And countries coming together to create more resilient and sustainable health systems. I want to talk, well, I want to ask you and also talk a minute about migration. 
for the, and we only have two minutes, so we're just going to start this conversation and probably have to con- conclude it on the other side of the break. I think it's pretty obvious to those of us who, as my daughter likes to say, are into this stuff. <laughs> uh, but for those of us who, who really do study and look at and, and experts like you on environmental uh, issues and, and, and the health impacts, that migration really is a function of climate change. Do you all have these discussions or realizations uh, of this phenomena in COP27? I think there was a lot of talk about migration. And we know that disasters are causing a, a, both in-country displacement as well as out-of-country displacement. So there was definitely discussion about this as far as a solution and knowing what to do. I don't think we're there yet. But there's no question that there was a lot of talk about migration particularly related to these extreme weather events and particularly related to hurricanes and cyclones and flooding in Southeast Asia and Asia, because these are causing such significant displacement of millions of people. Um, and those, those impacts, particularly the Pakistan floods, are really something that is starting conversations about migration and what we need to do about it. Well, that, that warms my heart that at least the conversation is started. You know, the talk, talk proceeds action. But and with all the, yeah. the rise of nationalism all around the world, I think, you know, if we can go back to some of its root cause of climate change, I think there can be perhaps better understanding and more embracing with an eye toward dealing with it and trying to resolve the problem. Y'all need a whole platform and a whole day or two in, in the cops on that. We're going to go to break now and we'll be back on the other side with Tess Wiskell from Harvard. Thank you, Tess. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in many Whole Foods markets, all natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years, non-mercury with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show, on the road from COP27, where do we go from here and why does it matter? And what really happened at COP27? And we are back with Tess Wiskell, who is really making us smarter and helping us to understand uh, some of these issues and, and what we came out of it uh, with. Now, Tess, last year in Glasgow, they talked a lot about natural solutions. Was there any, do, do they do things at, at COP like doing a recap? Like, here's what we said we were going to do last year, or here were the th- partnerships or things that were done, and and here's what happened. So, and I'm asking that for you to tell me about what's with Natural Solutions at this point that came out of Glasgow's COP26. 
Yes, so there's definitely the global stock take, and there's a lot of different negotiation streams happening that are talking about what our goals were and where we are now and how far we are towards them. And I think there still is a lot of talk about natural solutions, Um, and it's a really important talk to talk about what we can do from preventing deforestation to reforestation to preserving our wetlands. And there is a lot of talk about around natural solutions and what we need to do to keep them going. Yeah, natural solutions seems to be, again, seems to be, a place or an effort where ordinary people in their everyday lives can become much more engaged. But could you tell us some examples of some natural solutions that are underway, of that it worked, or that uh, are significant that folks are talking about? So I'll give you one local example, which is that around Boston, there are community organizations that are actually getting rid of concrete and planting trees. So planting trees in the urban environment. And this does a couple different things. And this is something that people can take back to their local communities. So one thing this does is adds trees to the world. And we know that trees are a sink for greenhouse gases. But the other thing it's doing is it's reducing the urban heat island effect. So we know that in areas where there's not a lot of green space, that you're going to have more of a heat island effect. We can see that within cities during heat waves, there are areas of the city that are hotter compared to areas of the city that aren't as hot. And we know that some of this is related to having green space. So one thing that's a natural solution is replanting trees and bringing trees back into these green spaces and creating these green spaces. And it creates a place to go and it creates shade and it creates, it does a lot of different things for the community. And it's one thing you can think about doing within your own local communities. Thank you for that example, because it really is a good example that anybody can plug into. And particularly here in North Texas, we could plug into it because we're one of those few places that still has an abundance of surface parking lots. Mm-hmm. And to you know chop those up and put some trees or even to redesign them so that there's Absolutely. more green and to diminish some of that uh, urban heat island would be good. So thank you for giving that example. Absolutely. Now, also, Tess, what indicators were or are there that there is more commitment now, perhaps, than at the last COP? I think that one thing is the fact that this loss of damage fund went through. I, that's been something that's been pushed upon for a long time. And the fact that that went through at this COP really does show that there's a commitment. Um, we're also seeing countries coming back, um, like President Biden coming, like Lula coming. We're seeing countries coming back to the table and talking about this and committing to goals and to working together and really pushing forward the fight for climate change worldwide. And I think that's one big thing. Um, and that we're looking at this more as an opportunity. So through what, through talking about what's happening and through adaptation, we're seeing this as an opportunity to work within countries and work within systems to come up with climate resilient solutions that help our most vulnerable. And I think that we're seeing these voices becoming stronger and stronger. And particularly at this COP, I was able to see the voices of women and indigenous groups and the countries that are most vulnerable having more of an impact and people really listening and them being some of the strongest voices showing us that we really need to do something now by showing these examples of what is happening now. Now, back here in the States, we heard a lot on the news during the COP about the president of China not attending. Well, you know, they are one of the world's biggest economies, if not the biggest. 
where do they stand on climate change and issues? And and was it just kind of maybe a political thing or political posturing that they weren't there? Or were they in protest about climate change at all? I think that some of the reason that China wasn't there or China wasn't initially talking was because of other issues, is particularly with the United States and other political issues that I am not an expert in, but everything from where kind of negotiations were cut off after we saw differences in opinion on Taiwan and other global issues. So actually, one of the big things that did come out of this COP is that we did see the envoys between China and the U.S. coming together. And that was a really big deal, that the doors are open again to negotiations, because the U.S. is the biggest prior emitter, and China is really growing to become one of the biggest emitters now. Um, And the fact that these countries that have such a big impact on the world are now coming together again to be able to talk, despite, you know, the president not being able to come. That's a really big next step from COP, but also from um, seeing these different envoys coming together now. I I hope and I want to and I'm going to think uh, as well (laughs) that the fact or act of China's and U.S. envoys coming together, too, says that China does recognize uh, and appreciate climate change and its impacts irrespective of the the surface political disagreements that they have. Absolutely. And China has definitely said that they're they're moving forward on renewable energy and reducing fossil fuels. And that's a really big deal because we do know that China is producing more now and is on an upward peak compared to the U.S. where we are increasing our renewables. Indeed. And I would like to see China, as well as some other rapidly developing nations, that as they go through that rapid development... They can, it's like we talked about the supply chain, that as they go through that, now that they are aware of the issues that can be caused and the impacts on climate change, that as they go through that, they do it better. And they do it with sensitivity to the impact on climate change. Absolutely. And one of the big things we can do with that is we can see how solar and wind energy are becoming cheaper. Um, And that makes it a more viable option as countries are developing and as countries are looking for alternatives. When the prices are decreasing, it makes it a more viable alternative. And that's a really exciting thing, especially that these different sources of energy are decreasing in price. It, it does. Uh, it's, it's interesting, too, and I guess I kind of chuckle in the back of my mind. I remember when you said that the COP28 is going to be in uh, Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it made me think back to them making uh, Sharm el-Sheikh a green city. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I wonder if they're going to try to make Abu Dhabi a green city for the, for the COP28. <laughs> that would be interesting. That, that, but you know what? That would be really it would be interesting, but that would be really cool and I think significant, too. They could make a big statement. They could. I think it's going to be a very interesting perspective having it in such a big fossil fuel producing nation of what it's going to look like. Because it was a big, interesting statement to be having it in the desert, really, mm-hmm. in Egypt and mm-hmm. really feeling the effects. Honestly, there was a talk there of feeling the effects of this heat island because you were on this kind of pavement in the ground where you were there and where the heat was so much when you were physically attending COP. And there were emissions from the event itself. Like there were big air conditioning units, air conditioning all of the different pavilions and where we were. Um, And I think thinking about how to make this greener and how to fill this effects and seeing the effects right there as you're physically attending COP did have a big impact as well. It should be even more impactful next year then for sure. (laughs) So Tesla, who would you say were the major players, both nation wise in terms of nations and countries, uh, as well as uh, perhaps institutions and and companies? Who were the major players going into COP? 
and why would you say they're major, and who were the major players coming out? Well, we know that Egypt hosted, and Egypt was a great host bringing people together, um, and this was the African COP, and there was a lot of talk about this being the African COP, so I think that was a big contributor to this COP, talking about what was actually happening and talking about vulnerability and talking about what's happening in African countries that are particularly vulnerable and are particularly impacted and also didn't contribute as many fossil fuels emissions to the problem. So that was one major factor in this COP and one major contributor was really talking about African countries and the most vulnerable nations. Um, And then I think the U.S. was a big, was very impactful too with the amount of response to their really having a big delegation coming and showing what we're doing and that there is a commitment and that we did agree to a loss and damage fund. I think that was a big thing. And China, although not there, China agreeing to even just speak with the U.S. was a big change as well. But what would you say were the the, the most tangible goals or takeaway are those that are most likely to materially impact Ordinary folks in their everyday lives. I know that the loss and damage fund was significant, but just in terms of the ordinary folks in their everyday lives, what do you think were perhaps the most tangible goals and takeaways from the COP? I think the big things we're going to see in everyday lives is a more push towards renewable energy. I think you're going to be seeing that in your everyday lives. I think you're going to start to see how we're developing more renewable energies in your everyday lives here at home in the U.S. But around the world, we're going to be seeing this and this push away from fossil fuels. And we're going to be seeing the impacts of climate change. And we're going to be seeing what that's doing to the most vulnerable populations and how we're changing to respond to that. Indeed. And I would really like to see the day I look forward to is when there's not a choice. The only energy available is renewable energy. Now, yeah, that would but be I cool. think it's a great push. We're seeing electric, <laughs> electric vehicles and we're seeing more renewable energy, and that's a really big deal. And that you don't have a choice to use anything else. That's what's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much, Tess. We really appreciate you helping us out, and you have made us smarter in a very entertaining uh, and impactful way. So thank you. We have been today with Tess Wiskell. And again, Tess is an emergency medis- medicine physician, uh, and she is with Harvard Sea Change as well as Christ crisis ready and her goal and her work is about uh, helping to understand the health impact of environmental issues and particularly she's been looking at extreme weather events thank you so much Tess and thank you listeners for listening in today to Healthy Living Healthy Planet Radio the conversation starts here but our goal is for it to continue in your home in your social circles your workplaces at the water cooler and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today and join us again next week as we begin our series on plastic pollution. Also, please listen to any of our past shows as well as this one later this week uh, on podcasts wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. Thank you.